Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the EGO's MRCI podcast. My name is Rochelle Kernan, and we also have our co-host, Autumn Hagsma. And today we have a very special guest, Sherilyn Williams-Stroud. She is a research scientist and research associate professor at the Illinois State Geologic Survey, which is a part of the University of Illinois. Thank you so much, Sherilyn, for being here today. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks. Good. Oh, I'm so excited to talk to you. We've um, we spent a while scheduling this podcast, so I'm super happy it worked out. Um, so to start off today, can you please share with our audience more about yourself? So maybe give us um, a window into your career path, any goals or passions that you have. Sure. Um, I started off as a music major. I'm not oh, sure cool. many people. <laughs> yes. Um, and I went to Oberlin College and ended up doing geology there after I wasn't good enough to be in the conservatory. Oh, yeah. Um, but I found out there that I really liked geology because I always liked doing things outside and um, and I wanted to do something that didn't involve bugs. <laughs> or, or biology. I was never yeah. attracted to biology. Okay. But, so geology was like the kind of science that really appealed to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I had, I went to Johns Hopkins to get my master's um, degree and PhD. And my first job was at the U.S. Geological Survey in Denver, Colorado. So okay. I started off doing government science and now I'm doing government science again at the Illinois State Geological Survey. Sure. But I worked at the USGS for about 10 years before going into the oil and gas industry. Okay. And um, while, so I spent time working for um, uh, one of the major operators, um, Texaco, okay. which turned into um, Chevron Texaco while I was there. And now it's just Chevron. The Texaco went away. Yep. Uh, I've worked for a couple of uh, consulting or service companies. One was um, formerly called Midland Valley Exploration. Now they are, and they make the, the structural modeling software move. Um, yeah. Now they're part of Petroleum Experts. Yep, I know exactly that one. That's awesome. Yep. And then the um, other one I worked for was a um, uh, startup at the time, Microseismic Inc. Okay. And at Microseismic Inc., um, they developed um, a method of monitoring hydraulic fracturing from the surface, wow. which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, I was the first geologist that worked there. They were a bunch of geophysicists when I joined. Sure. And then I worked for a major operator again for a few years. It was Occidental Oil and Gas. Mm -hmm. They spun off to California Resources, um, and um, oil and gas prices went down. The gas shale bust happened. Basically, mm. I got laid off. Mm. Started my own consulting company. Um, at a time when everybody was trying to do it. So I was having trouble getting traction. And then I saw this job advertised at the Illinois State Geological Survey. And I said, mm, I can do that. Mm -hmm. And interviewed and liked the people. And here I am. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Do you have any, um, I mean, obviously geology is probably one of your goals and passions, but is there anything else outside of um, geology that you love to do? Well, I still do music when I have time. Oh, that's what instrument uh, I, do you play? <laughs> French horn. <laughs> oh, that is so cool. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And so, um, I, when I have time, I play in community orchestras, which means I have to also have time to practice, but mm -hmm. I've been really busy these days. Um, and I used to run a lot. I cool. used to do, um, 
um, the boulder boulder every mm -hmm. year. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, getting older, my knees and hips don't like it so much anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but, but also before that, I used to, and this is another kind of interesting aside that a lot of people don't know about me. I used to do traditional African dance. We had a dance troupe in Denver. Oh, cool. And we performed at, um, you know, different cultural festivals, things like that. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. What part of Africa was it from? Or was it like just a general... It was different uh, dances from different countries, but okay. mostly from the Ivory Coast because oh, okay. the um, the dance mistress, um, a, a young blonde <laughs> <laughs> um, from um, from Colorado, just really loved the dance form, and she lived in the Ivory Coast. She moved to to um, live in the Ivory Coast. I think she lived there for I don't remember. It was four to six months, just to you know interact with the people and learn the dance yeah. the dances right yeah. so she came back and taught us all all the all of the dance dances that she knew traditional african dance mostly in the style that she learned at the ivory coast but there are a few things that we a few dances that we did that were um, sort of nigerian dance style cool. as well cool that's so awesome yeah so sharon i know that you work a lot in on the carbon capture and storage projects, especially on the monitoring side. Uh, can you tell us more about the importance of monitoring for CO2 storage and maybe the different types of monitoring technologies that are out there? Yeah, sure. Um, so that was that was actually one of the reasons why I said when I saw the job advertised, right? They they're one of the things that we monitor um, when you inject fluids, there's always some chance that you may cause uh, seismicity, right? So uh, if you are familiar with wastewater injection, that has become a big deal, right? So wastewater injection has caused, uh, has been associated with um, large earthquakes, damaging earthquakes, not just felt earthquakes, but damaging earthquakes. So um, in Oklahoma, they've had, they've had earthquakes um, mag above magnitude five, and that caused some damage to, to buildings. Um, generally, if it's above magnitude three, you can feel them, and and then they, you know, if they don't cause damage, then they're still sort of nuisance. They have nuisance value, and the the monitoring the, the um, because they monitored for induced seismicity, um, which is sort of my area of expertise interpreting induced seismicity. Um, there was they did um, detect a bunch of micro earthquakes during injection um, of the CO2 at the Decatur projects, right? Decatur, Illinois um, projects that we were working with uh, Archer Daniels Midland to, to inject, to sequester CO2. So, but those were all micro earthquakes. There was, there was the, high, the biggest earthquake, depending on how you calculate the magnitude was 1.5, oh, wow. um, 1.2 to 1.5. And, um, for that one, you, you want to make sure that you, you monitor so that you make sure that your injection, for earthquakes, you make sure that your injection doesn't lead to large, for instance, felt earthquakes or to damaging earthquakes. So that's, that's one reason to monitor. And that kind of monitoring should, you know, be, should be continuous. But we also monitor for where the um, CO2 is going in the subsurface. So that can be done by using um, other wells with... Um, with pressure gauges and um, uh, ability to sample um, the fluid, so you can see if the if the CO two is has uh, gotten to that well. Uh, that's an ex more expensive way to to monitor chemi chemically, 
And there are some um, research methods that are being developed now that maybe where we may be able to tell where the CO2 is actually is based on the electromagnetic response. So those two things in the subsurface are important for monitoring because you want to make sure your CO2 doesn't leak out. Yep. And you want to make sure that your CO2 doesn't cause um, concerning seismicity. And you also monitor at the surface, right? So you want to make sure that there's nothing leaking in your infrastructure and nothing coming up to the surface. Um, you know, even just leaking, you know, it could leak up through out of your reservoir, but if it got all the way up to the surface, that's uh, that would be pretty serious too. So you have to have monitoring in place to make sure it's not coming up to the surface. Mm -hmm. Okay, so could you please tell us how often um, should a storage project be monitored? I mean, is this something that's ongoing or do you just do it like once a month or how many times does it need to be monitored or for how long? Yeah, that, that's a good question. So uh, the, the, I think the idea is that you monitor it for as long as you're injecting and then for a few decades after. Okay. Right? Okay. So at the, in the, at the Decatur um, site, they monitored for induced, they monitored uh, for seismicity for 18 months before injection, because in that case, you want to, you need to get uh, an idea of what the natural seismicity is like. So you can know whether you're changing it yep. when you start injecting. And so it, the, the way we monitor these is that by continuously collecting data. And these, these data sets have gotten pretty large, right? So yeah. um, we have continuous seismic data from multiple sensors, um, hundreds of terabytes of data, actually. And, and so it's still being monitored um, from from the downhole, there, there are sensors in some of the wells and there are sensors on the surface. So it's still being monitored at this point. Um, I think USGS has sensors out there that can detect large earthquakes. Uh, still, not, none of that is happening at the Decatur site, mm -hmm. but you want to keep the sensors out there just in case. The, and yeah, so to answer your question, you monitor during injection the whole time mm -hmm. to make sure that your injection is not causing a problem. And then you monitor afterwards um, for keeping track of the plume, keeping track of whether there's some change in induced seismicity, um, keeping track of the pressure. So I want to say plume, where the CO2 um, is in the surface, in the subsurface, and where the pressure, the increased pressure is in the subsurface. So sure. um when we model these before injection or before you'd start the project, um, we look at how the plume will behave based on what we know about the rock properties for, you know, 20 to 30 years, mm -hmm. um, or at least 20 years after the project stops injecting. Sure. And, you know, you mentioned a, a handful of different types of technologies with different purposes. Uh, in your experience, has there been a specific technology or maybe a combination of technologies that you think is most effective for the monitoring purposes? Yeah, it depends on what you're monitoring for, right? So for monitoring for induced seismicity, um, <laughs> I guess I have a bias here because <laughs> um, one of the things I think is a good idea is to have um, a surface array um, sort of not, so the USGS has, I think, um, 
these are 12 to 15 seismometers around the Decatur site, for instance. And but it only detects the larger earthquakes, like you know, it doesn't detect anything above magnitude zero. And most of the 90% of the events were below magnitude zero. Mm -hmm. um, and but if you if you modify that and you have some sort of array on the surface that um, you can use some of our seismic imaging methods like Microseismic Inc did, then you can um, sort of stack the data and detect smaller events and also figure out how the rock broke. So I, I'm partial to that, that method of monitoring for induced seismicity. And I also mentioned um, methods where we use electromagnetics too to um uh to um detect where the co2 is so there's so okay so there's two parts so one of the other thing that we do is we we create we, we can um acquire 3d seismic volumes reflection 3d seismic reflection volumes mm -hmm. where you image the subsurface you create the you know you find out where the layers are and where the faults are but if you increase the pressure like from like you will when you inject CO2, then you should be able to see that increase in an image that you take a few years later, right? And mm -hmm. we do have those time-lapse images. The problem with that is it's really expensive. Okay. <laughs> so once you acquire a seismic volume, you want you have to go back and you reoccupy the same source and receiver sites, and then you recreate this, the same image, and then you compare. Yeah. And that kind of monitoring will tell you hopefully where the plume, where the pressure plume is. It doesn't tell you where the CO2 is. Mm -hmm. And if you can combine that with this electromag these electromagnetic um, imaging methods, then maybe you can also see where the plume is, the CO2 is. But that's still in development. That hasn't really been um, applied and proven at a CO2 monitoring site yet. Okay. So if you really want to know exactly where it is, you can use wells. Mm -hmm which is also expensive because you can't drill wells everywhere and you don't want to drill wells everywhere because then that leads to that creates leak points. Yep. <laughs> but the wells that you have, we, you know, had four, four deep wells at the site. Those wells um, will allow you to sample periodically to figure out where the, um, where the CO2 is. And also they have pressure gauges in them so you can monitor how high the pressure is getting. So I, I guess I can't say pick one technology that's the most effective, <clears throat> excuse me, they're, they're all, you have to use a combination mm -hmm. of different methods to figure, to put the picture together, right? So mm -hmm. it's, it's an integrated project where you can, you know, if you see, if you see induced seismicity, you know, potentially, um, if you see it in a place where you don't, where it's, um, like for, it would be bad if you saw it in the reservoir seal, because that would mean that you have the potential for um, leaking upward out of the reservoir. Mm -hmm. So you have to do that kind of monitoring. You know, it, and if you have it do that kind of monitoring the right way, then you can also figure out how the rock broke, which would also help you understand more about the, res the reservoir stress and what you need to worry about and how you need to, what you might need to modify in your injection program. But it's that part, that kind of monitoring doesn't tell you anything about the chemistry, like where, mm -hmm. where's the, the rest of the, um, you just know what's happening at those points where you see the, the induced seismicity. Mm -hmm. So using the wells to 
integrate with where you have the induced seismicity and also um, additional methods to try to put the whole picture together to figure out where the, the fluid is going in three dimensions is, um, it's, it's, yeah, you have to do this integrated thing to, to figure it all out. So not one technology, but multiple technologies need to be applied. Mm-hmm. And then just kind of feeding off of that, is there um, a need or growth for new technologies and methods? Uh, no, I think there's absolutely a need for growth in technologies, and and we're also involved in projects um, that are pursuing that, right? So we have Department of Energy has their uh, has um, projects where going where we're trying to use machine learning to figure out how to um, both streamline and improve the process of detecting where um, the CO two is, where how the stress changes. Um, in the subsurface as you're injecting, how the pressure changes, um, cheaper and faster ways of creating images um, of the subsurface. You know, I mentioned that the Mm -hmm. 3D um, acquisitions are expensive. They take a long time to process. So some of our, um, our, um, some of the uh, the, um, methods that are being developed are to to try to to, um, accelerate that Mm -hmm. as well as figure out how to do it with less, sensors okay. um you know so it, so it's so that you can do it more often and to and for less money yep. <laughs> and i'm gonna steer us away from ccus and monitoring and focus on some of your other really exciting projects that are inspirational um you were recently featured in a book called everyday superheroes uh which is a a, a children's book to highlight women in energy careers. Can you tell us more about the book and your experience being featured? Yes, I'd love to tell you about this book. This is like one of the most fun things I've ever been involved <laughs> in in my professional career. Um, the the, the, the um, author, Erin um, Twomley, um, has um, put together a series of books of women in STEM. And the first one was was STEM in general. And then she wanted to do a second one, um, um, women in STEM energy careers. And so that's the one that I'm in. And there are 34 women profiled in this book and various um, um, types of things that have to do with energy. So there's engineers, there's a lot of engineers in there. There are people working oil and gas, there are people working in um, um, electricity grid, there are people who work in geothermal. It's a really cool book. I mean, so, um, and the thing that's really fun about it is I have my own avatar now. Like they drew this, they drew a picture. (laughs) They have an artist that's working on this who drew a picture of everybody that's in the book. So there's none of us, there's no photographs in this book. There's this, there's all these really (laughs) cute avatars that we have um, showing us where the artist shows us um, sort of in a work environment, right? Yeah. And then it just, and I have this little pin, uh, a button that says uh, everyday superhero that I wear around. And I like, I went to Houston for the image meeting recently. And mm-hmm. when I was um, checking in, checking my bag, the guy that was checking my bag asked me what it meant. <laughs> so I said, well, he said, what, you're a superhero? I said, yes, I'm a superhero. <laughs> and so I said, I said, I'm in a book. And, I, and he said, I said, it's a children's book. Um, aimed at um, grade school kids and 
um, you can buy it. I think he asked, he might've asked me, can I buy this book? And so I told him where I could buy it and he looked it up and he said, I'm going to get this book. So I just love it when we have these kind of interactions because um, I just, I mean, one of the things, okay, you asked me about my other passions. I want everybody to have um, excitement about science, right? You you don't have to be a scientist, but I I just think that a natural curiosity that kids have should be nurtured. And I, this, this kind of book, I think, helps do that. And when people get excited about about it for whatever reason, just because they saw my button, that really, you know, I, I get a kick out of that. And yeah. So yeah, that that's a that's a really cool thing. <laughs> and it's so important to to show the many faces of of energy and STEM careers. Um, I have a couple of copies of the book myself, and I love showing it to my kids, and they get to see especially my girls, you know, they can be, they can look at that and see that, hey, they look like me, I can be a scientist too. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yes, I love that. (laughs) So in addition to that, I know that uh, diversity and education are also very important to you. And you've been involved in uh, the development of an incredible program. So it's HS2GP. Can you please tell our audience a bit more about this program and your role within it? Yes. So this is a program um, that I'm copying (laughs) or replicating as much as I can an existing program. I have to shout out to um, my friend and colleague, um, Dr. Isaac Crumbly at uh, Fort Valley State University in Georgia. Uh He has been running a program called the Cooperative Developmental um, Energy Program for more than 30 years, where it's funded by mostly energy companies um, um, where they, they encourage, they, they take the, what he calls STEM talented uh, undergraduates and they pursue a STEM degree, whatever they have at the HBCUs. Mm-hmm. At, at his school, they don't have geoscience. Now they have a geoscience major, but that's a very recent uh, geoscience minor, but that's a very recent development. So they take, they have students in the program um, that uh, agree to pursue whatever STEM degree, like chemistry, math, um, uh, pre-engineering, I think they have at his school, biology, in an accelerated undergraduate bachelor's um, program. So they finish it in seven semesters because they start the summer before their freshman year. Mm-hmm. And then they go on to a second school and this will be a predominantly white institution because that's where all the geoscience programs are. And they get a geoscience degree. Um, it's and they his his program started off as um, a double bachelor's degree, so they'd have three years to do the the first STEM degree from the HBCU, and then the um, two years for to get um, the geoscience degree from the the PWI, the predominantly white institute mm-hmm. institution. And for those of you you who don't know, HBCU is Historically Black Colleges and Universities. Um, I always forget people don't always know what that is. Mm -hmm. And so I was looking at um, Dr. Crumley's program and saying, like, this is the way that we can get more, increase the numbers of African-Americans in geoscience because geoscience, African-Americans are the worst represented in geoscience Mm -hmm. um, of all the STEM fields, right? So there's some, you know, less than 1% of us when we're 
you know, 12% of the population. So, and in STEM in general, African-Americans are underrepresented, but uh, geoscience is worse. So I, I decided I wanted to do something to help um, change that. Mm -hmm. And so we put together this working group that it grew a lot bigger <laughs> than than what I originally intended it to be because originally I was just going to copy um, uh, Dr. Crumbly's program, which is one school and one HBCU and several um, PWIs, and we ended up with three HBCUs and six PWIs and four state geological surveys. So, <laughs> so it's it's a fairly big program so far. And at this point, we have all of the structure in place, how we're going to run it, and what the the students will be expected to do. Um, um, ready contracts that we can um, use to for the students to sign for how they're going to work their way through the program. The curriculum is, is we've decided on the curriculum. Mm -hmm. um, and we're sort of in the fundraising. Cool. <laughs> or I shouldn't say sort of. We are in the fundraising phase for the yeah. program. Yeah. And um, I have to thank, I'm going to go ahead and thank Occidental Oil and Gas at this point because they've already um, the, uh, committed some funding to the program, which is great. And we want to... Um, uh, get more partners because the, our idea is to, we, we don't want the students to feel alone at each HBCU, HBCU. So there's three HBCUs. So we want to have at least two students at each HBCU mm -hmm. um, in the first year when we start the program. Awesome. And we're, it, we're also recruiting right now from HBCUs and community colleges to have some students starting in the program um, this coming summer, 2023. So along those lines, then, do you have any current needs to help support the growth of this program? Yes, money. <laughs> that's the main thing. I mean, I mean, it was so funny because I started thinking about why there aren't, you know, why there's so few African Americans in geoscience, and I and I didn't attend an HBCU, but right now there are no HBCUs that have a geoscience major. Oh, right? wow. Okay. For, yeah. So I, that's part of the problem. Mm -hmm. um, but um, Fort Valley State University in the last few months got approval to offer a geoscience minor. So they're making progress with introducing uh, African-Americans to um, to the, pot, the potential to be a geoscientist. But um, our needs right now are, you know, the reason that that program works is because they off they the students that are in the program are on full scholarship, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the the I think that um, and the way I'm going forward with this is we want students to be enticed to choose geoscience because it's something they may not be familiar with. Um, and once you get into the field, it means going to places that you may not have thought of going because you hadn't been exposed to geoscience. Most a, a lot of people who are um, geoscientists today were like me. They discovered it in college, right? They mm -hmm. took a geology course and say, hey, this is pretty cool. So, mm -hmm. you know, went further and ended up being a geologist if you didn't have one in your family. And and if there is no geoscience program at an HBCU, that possibility doesn't exist. So we have to entice people to want to do this, first of all, to get them to, to agree to try to do their bachelor's degree in three years <laughs> uh, and then commit to an, another two or three years to get a master's degree at a different school. Mm -hmm. So the enticement, I think, is the, um, 
first of all, is the fact that you get a full ride if you get accepted to the program. And the other part is uh, access to internships. So the companies that we are trying to um, get to partner with us on this will um, not only would like to have them fund the program, but we also want them to um, provide internships to the students. Mm -hmm. And this is the part that we're um, copying exactly from uh, the CDEP Cooperative Developmental Energy Program at Fort Valley State. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you so much for letting us uh, interview you. I've learned a lot and I really appreciate the time that you spent uh, chatting with us and sharing just a fraction of your knowledge with our audience. Well, you're welcome. I enjoyed it too. This podcast is sponsored by the Midwest Regional Carbon Initiative, which is a structured five-year program funded by the U.S. Department of Energy. It is co-led by Battelle and the Illinois State Geological Survey. The initiative works to connect science, technology, and research to advance CCUS acceptance and deployment in 20 states across the Midwest, Mid-Atlantic, and New England regions of the United States.